Let me try that again. Good morning, everyone. What a blessing and an honor it is to be with First Press today. You know, I'm looking at some beautiful faces in front of me, and I'm just so honored to be here. You know, you guys, I want you guys, before I even get started, to give a hand clap for your pastor, the Reverend Shannon Pappas. You know, throughout this pandemic and this difficult time that we've been through, he's been the watchman on the wall. I'm sure he's made the phone calls. He's kept this uh, body of Christ uh, centered together. Even when we couldn't meet in place, we know that there was a shepherd who was watching over the flock. Now, he didn't pay me to say that. (laughs) But I'm going to say this before I get into my sermon because I've met a lot of preachers over the years, a lot of pastors. And the one thing that struck me about Reverend Shannon was how much he cared for the people. When he began to talk to me about this Sunday and what would be shared, he was really concerned about the flock, about what the flock would be fed, and about the direction of the church. Many pastors don't care. And I was just, um, I was just moved. I was walking down the street talking to him on my cell phone one day. I was just moved by, wow, he really loves these people. And so um, I'm thankful to be here, and I'm thankful, Pastor, for your invitation. Today, I'm going to be sharing from the theme, The Invisible Man at the Gates. And this story is going to, this uh, message is going to come from Luke chapter 16, verse 19. The scripture reads as thus. There was a man who was dressed in purple and fine linen who lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, when he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me. And send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us there is a great chasm that has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets, and let them hear them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes back to them, they'll repent. He said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. The most powerful piece of any body of literature is the first sentence. Consider the first sentence of this story. One of the most powerful stories, incidentally, in the entire Bible. I remember being a little boy in Sunday school, and I couldn't have been more than four or five years old, uh, sitting here just like some of you young, some of the young people here. And I, I remember being four or five and just being mortified by this story, by being shaken by this story. The first sentence, it reads, there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. We are being introduced to a character who, if I could use a colloquialism from the inner city, has his paper right. We are not told what he looks like. We are not told what he does in his spare time. We are not told who his ancestors or his relatives are. The single most defining trait given to him is his bank account. On the hard blocks of the hood where I minister, we would say he was about that paper. That Skrilla, 
that guap, that dinero, that cheddar, that bread, those bucks, those benjamins, that cabbage, that cake, those dead presidents, that dough, that fetty, that lettuce, that loot, that salad, or that wampum. He had 3,000 pairs of sneakers in his closet next to his alligator shoes. And if it did not say Fendi, uh, Prada, or Gucci on it, it was not going to lay on his back. He lived in a paradise on earth, and his life looked like poolside at a Jay-Z video. The Bible tells us that he dressed in purple, which means that he was either royalty or a high-ranking political official. He was a powerful man, and in any society since the dawn of time, he would have been an object of respect, even worship. Why? Because he was rich, of course. 2,000 years after this nameless rich man walked the earth, a rap group called the Wu-Tang Clan will create a song around the acronym CREAM. And in the streets, this stands for cash rules everything around me. Respect for people with wealth came to me at an early age. My parents were not rich. They weren't poor either. My father was an electronic engineer. My mother was a school teacher. And when I was in third grade, my parents sent me to a, an exclusive private school. They struggled to put me through that school. And there in that school, I learned the meaning of wealth. And I learned the meaning of money. And I did not learn the meaning of money in math class. I learned the power of money by watching how the teachers would fawn over students who came from homes where there was fantastic wealth. Oh, you couldn't tell us apart. We all wear the same blue blazers and the same gray pants, but there was a certain aura around the kids who had wealth. Even at a young age, we were taught to point at certain kids with admiration and say, that's so-and-so, son. Or her parents owned such-and-such -such a restaurant train or a uh, construction conglomerate. In silent ways, we were taught that people who had wealth were somehow better than us, almost godlike. Those early days in elementary school pulled back the curtain on a reality that would never cease to amaze me. When the OJs in the 70s sang, For the Love of Money, so how many people have ever heard that song, For the Love of Money? When the OJs sang that song back in the 70s, there was a line and it says, for a small piece of paper, it carries a lot of weight. And I found that true. The deification of the money class was a virus that has worked itself into the bloodstream of church bodies that I would later join as an adult. I went to one church where the pastor became so jubilant when a person of wealth and standing joined the church that he would stand that person up, bring him up here, stand the person next to him, and then he would tell what corporation they worked for or what position they held. People were chosen to leave the church not because of their spirituality, but where they stood on the economic ladder. Money will get back. I'm all right, Jack. Keep your hands off my stack. So said Pink Floyd. Money can be a God. That is why Jesus spoke more about money than heaven or hell. Well, in the story that we read, the rich man is not alone. Enter the second character in the drama. Unlike the rich man, he is given a name. The name Lazarus is derived from the name Eleazar, which means God helps. When you read the story, you start thinking, He's not well-named because we don't see the help that's being given by God. Some of us in this room are facing some difficult times, some harsh times. Some of us have had, are in economic distress. Some of us in this room have had loved ones who perished from COVID-19. Some of us have loved ones who are dealing with drug or alcohol addiction issues, and we're praying and we're saying, where is God? If God helps, where is the help that comes from God? The scripture says, they that wait on the Lord, they shall renew their strength. They shall mount up on wings like eagles. They shall run 
and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. And if you're that individual who's kind of like Lazarus at the gate and you're struggling today, I'm going to tell you to hold on. Because the biblical epic is, is nothing short of the story of how God comes through for his children. Wait on the Lord. So Lazarus is the polar opposite of the rich man who has it all. Lazarus has nothing. He's poor. He's hungry. He's sick. He's ragged. He sits there at the rich man's gate day in and day out, languishing in the dust. His only relief is when the dogs come and lick his sores. Oh, oh Lazarus is a sight to behold. His hair is dirty and matted. His, his ribs show beneath his frail, sworn garment. And he smells. He smells from the open sores. But not only that, he, has, he smells because he has the inability to bathe or to even avail himself to any clean clothes. The rich man was presented with an opportunity every day. He could have been a co-laborer with God. He could have been an earthly savior for Lazarus. He could have been the flame that announced God's presence on the earth as a light in darkness for the forgotten or for those who live beyond the status quo. But he didn't. Why didn't he come to Lazarus' rescue when he had the chance? Well, maybe he got so consumed with the cares of this world that he never quite got around to it. Maybe he just got too busy. At the beginning of the pandemic, I felt isolated. I felt alone. You know, I do a lot of writing, and I, I meet people at coffee shops. I, I'm, if I want to meet you if, uh, in the community, I say, meet me at Starbucks or Pete's Coffee. When that couldn't happen, I, would get, I became really frustrated and, you know, really closed in. I, I wonder if there's anybody who will say, I understand that, Rev. I, I, I understand most hands in here went up. Well, I was really blessed because I'm a minister, and uh, I knew some pastors in the community who were really nice to me. And they had a big church, church about the size of this one. Nobody could go in the church because it was closed off. So they said, Rev, here's the keys to our church. And so when you want to get ready to write or you want to have a time of respite away from home, you come right up in here. So the other night I was sitting in there, it was Thursday night. And I was sitting up in this church about 10 o'clock working on this sermon, and I heard a moaning sound outside. Now, it's 10 o'clock at night. We're in a very, um, this is in an upscale neighborhood. I heard a moaning sound, a, a groan, something like a, a foghorn. And you couldn't tell, Brother Larry, whether this was a situation where somebody was hurting or they were in pain or whether they were just hungry. I'm sitting there typing this sermon about what it means to, um, to, to be a service to the poor in a generous way. And I'm thinking to myself, I know who that is. You see, there's a gentleman who walks down the street to that community, an upscale community like this one. His shirt is black from soot. His pants, which are always the same pants, are, are ripped. They're, he's walking around with rags on. His clothes are torn and filthy. His mental state is such that he cannot communicate a single word. The only way that I know who he is is through that scream, that holler, that moan that he gives when he walks down the street. And so in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, I'm thinking, I got you, man, I got you. Let me just write this one more sentence on how to be of service generously to the poor. <laughs> and, uh, you know, a voice came to me at that point. I, I, I tend to be a little bit mystical at times, and a voice came to me. And that voice said, ironically, it's one thing to write about it and to preach about it. It's another thing altogether to be about it. So I keep some food in the refrigerator at that church. You know, you can look at my waistline and know that I keep a sandwich nearby most of the time. I, I, so I walked into that refrigerator and I made him a sandwich, a sandwich that I would eat. In fact, I used up most of the lunch meat that I was going to use and put it in that sandwich. And I got a piece of fruit and I took it outside and I handed it to him. And then I came back to work on this sermon again. The point is that Sometimes we can get so consumed with our cares, our own lives, our own bills, 
our own day-to-day, especially in the time of where we're coming out of COVID-19 and the world is just upside down, sometimes the, the needs of other folk just get on the back burner. There are needs in this church. Many of you are smiling today, but some of y'all are not tickled. Some of y'all are going home to a, a place where you're, you're wondering, you're wondering uh, why no one calls me. There's, there are people in this church who don't have the resources that they used to have, and they're in a place of struggle. So I understand, I get that, and this story kind of speaks to that. But in the, in the reality of what we're saying, we, we can become so consumed with our own stuff, and it's real life stuff, that we don't see Lazarus at the gate. In the story, Lazarus fantasizes about eating the crumbs that fell from the rich man's table. Still, I can imagine this one thing. I didn't learn this as a kid, but I learned this growing up. The rich man looked out for Lazarus. Right. See, the way it worked in those times was this. Uh, they didn't have Social Security. There was no, no government safety net. So if someone got sick or got ill, the way that they took care of them was, if they were very poor, they took them, or if they were indigent, they took them and put them at the gates of the richest person in town. So they believed in trickle-down economics. They believed that this person had been blessed so abundantly that what they're going to do is they're going to share their, the largesty of their wealth with the poorest individual. And many, many people did that. Abraham, God, there's no universal indictment against wealth in the Bible. Abraham, who ends up on the end, other side of the story, is rich. I imagine that he was one of the people, when he found somebody at his gate who was hungry, he took care of him. Job, when you read the story of Job, he's, he has this one portion of scripture in there where he talks about how he was eyes to the blind and he fought for the, the empowerment of the poorest people. Well, this rich man didn't quite see it like that. Uh, I can imagine poor Lazarus sitting at the gate watching oil magnets and heads of state and tucks and tails as they walk through that gate on the way to the rich man's elaborate dinner parties. The laughter, the smell of roasted lamb in the air. For Lazarus, for the rich man, this was paradise. But for Lazarus to be able to sit at that gate and see all that this man had but was unwilling to share was a hell on earth. I feel uniquely, uh, I, I, I feel uniquely qualified to broach this story because I have met Lazarus. Oh, literally. I've stopped Lazarus from jumping out of a window to meet his death in the Tenderloin. I have helped Lazarus, who laid in front of the building for years and years, to find housing and get inside. I have put shoes on Lazarus' feet. I have helped Lazarette to escape human trafficking. I've had Lazarus wake me up in the early mornings and say, Rev, give me a reason to go on. A couple of weeks ago, community minister and I walked out to an encampment in, in East Oakland. You see, we have a problem in Oakland called gentrification. So when the, uh, the big tech companies moved into the Bay Area, it created a housing squeeze. The price of housing in the poorest neighborhoods went up so that many people who had lived there for generations could no longer live in, those, in that housing. And so where did they go? They had to move into trailers. They lived underneath the freeways. San Francisco and the Bay Area is the second most expensive place only behind New York for housing in the whole country. And so we walked out to one of these housing, one of these encampments, squalor, filth, rubbish everywhere, terrible odors. And I looked at them with two little girls. And these little girls were running around and uh, playing just as they were, like they were at Disneyland. And I walked up to them with a bag of food and I said, y'all hungry? Yeah, man. They were about four years old, the cutest little girls. No, they're about, I'd say five, six years old. I handed them those bags of food. And my friend, the minister, was wondering, will they eat those? Will they eat the food we bring? She ripped into that bag like she had just, was, had just been lived, come off of a desert island. And when I looked at her and her little sister, they were just, she, I said, is that good? I, see, I make the sandwiches that I make for myself. <laughs> I know it was good. 
And so I watched her as she chewed into that sandwich. And I thought about what would it mean for us to give generously? Is my friend JP here? She, there she is in the back. JP, stand up for a minute. She's going she's gonna, to she's gonna hate me for this. Wave at everybody, JP. JP and I work together for an organization called Homies Empowerment in East Oakland, California. And we have, at the beginning of the pandemic, Cesar Cruz, Dr. Cesar Cruz, who is our leader, had an idea to feed the hungriest people. Because when the pandemic hit East Oakland, people lost their jobs. People, the safety net of the community, organizations that used to feed people, disappeared. And we had hungry people, children, elderly people drifting along the streets of East Oakland. Dr. Cruz one day said, we have a small headquarters. It's a storefront. I want you to bring all your canned goods. Bring fruit, whatever you got in your closet. Just bring it here. And we're just going to give whatever we have to the people. And we did. And what happened was, it was just like the miracle in the Bible of the fishes and loaves. The more we gave out, the more people came, but the more we had to give. People began to find out what we were doing. They began to put money on the Homies Empowerment Cash app. More people bought groceries. Soon we were serving thousands of people every week. The, the basketball player Steph Curry heard about what we were doing. He sent all kinds of resources to us. He, he found out that we needed a truck. Steph Curry he found out we needed a truck to get food from point A to point B. And he, he, ha, he gave us a brand new 2021 vehicle to do that. But it started with somebody realizing that there are other people on the other side of the gate and deciding well, it's just we're going to build that bridge. I'm coming, so I've talked about that. So, so our next step in Homies Empowerment is we're going to start, we, every Tuesday, if you came to Oakland, you'd see a line of people. People start lining up like, a, a, a child, am I right? Six, seven o'clock, six, seven o'clock in the morning? They're out there. We don't start serving till 10. We give out groceries. Our next step is we're going to take the food out to the encampments. We're poor people ourselves. We don't have a whole lot. But the only thing you have to have is God's breath on your back and the will, and things will happen. Well, let me tell you a little bit about myself, and then I'm going to give you a few things that you can do, practical things that you can do to bridge that gap. So um, I was born in New York City, and I went to, I went to a, a, a church where um, as a, as in my early 30s, a really bridging a story. I'm going to take you from birth to age 32. A pastor um, told me that God had a plan for my life. And he said, if you want to, you can do anything. You can do the things that God empowers you to do. I went to college, started at Credit A. Um, went to seminary school. Became a published author for InterVarsity Press while I was yet still in seminary school. And I had an idea of what it would mean to be a pastor. See, I come from a tr tradition where the pastor does not dress like, like my, my brother, Reverend Sh Shannon Pappas. See, he's sitting there with his, with his jeans on. And the tradition I came up in, the pastor wore a $1,000 suit. And somebody else carried the pastor's bag. And the pastor drove a, a you know, a six, might drive a six-figure car. And so I say, gee, this is what a minister is. And so when they, had a, when they would have the class about who wants to be a minister, class would be packed. Shoot, who, wants, who doesn't want to live like that? So um, I finished seminary school, and I was on my way to become a pastor, and I somehow ended up in East Oakland. I taught, it in, as an interim, I taught as an interim professor at a small Christian college. One night, um, I gave the students of my evangelism class a break, and I told them, y'all go and get a sandwich or something, and I'm going home. I live walking distance from the school, and I'll meet you back here in 15 minutes. As the students began to walk out, one young man looked at me, and he said, Rev, uh, they called me professor. He goes, professor, where are you going? And I thought that was rather strange that he would ask me where I'm going because I'm a grown man. I said, I'm, I live about a block away from here, and I'm going to go home. I'll never forget what he said. He begged me. He said, please, don't walk it. He said, don't walk it. And I thought, this guy is nuts. I've lived in Harlem at the height of the crack epidemic. I, I, I've lived in, uh, the, on the edge of West Philadelphia. I've lived in some places where there was a lot of danger and violence. Why would this man be telling me not to walk 
the one block. I was lived there for one week before I figured out why he told me to do that. First of all, he, gave, he wouldn't let me walk. He drove me to my house. And I was living there one week before I figured out why he told me not to walk home. That neighborhood was a war zone. One night I was laying in my bed. I'm watching television, and all of a sudden I heard gunfire. Not one shot, not two shots. I'm talking about you could hear people trading rapid uh, AK-47 gunfire. It was sounded like Fallujah at the height of the Iraq war. I hit the floor. After a few minutes, you heard the squad cars zooming down the street, and you, you could see the, the light from the police helicopter shining on the courtyard of the place that I lived. The next morning, I walked to the store, and there was a shrine that someone had put up early that morning. Uh, they call it they, the shrine had um, the shrine was um, had uh, Remy Martin bottles and candles and teddy bears, and it's the way the people in the hood mourn. And when I saw that, I thought to myself, where is Jesus in this community? Oh, 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 there are churches everywhere. In East Oakland, California, you can't throw a rock and not hit a church. But where is Jesus? I went and talked to the young men who were caught up on the, in the underground economy. There was a drug gang that controlled that neighborhood. And I went out, started going out and talking to them. And I said, you know what? Uh, I said, what y'all doing out here? And they said, Rev... Uh, they said, this is the only way we can put pampers on our baby's bottoms. They said, we've got records. We can't go to Best Buy and get a job. I can't get a job at Target. The only way that I can survive is to do what I'm doing. They went to an, a, educational uh, schools that did not prepare them for the future. There's no such the STEM education is not a, a, not a reality for kids that live in the inner city. They, have, they went to school where they were trained by teachers who ill-equipped, and classrooms that were too large. And so they were not prepared for the future. And it changed me. I began to meet people. I remember seeing a young man on the corner, and he would laugh. I would go to him and say, man, you got to get up out of this corner. And I remember him, he would just laugh at me and say, Rev, get at them down the block. You know, I'm just here making, you know, making a living. Remember one day the police had him up against the, the fence, and they were searching him. And he looked at me, and his eyes looked down in despair and, and shame. Later on, I turned open the, the newspaper about a year or two later, and his face was in there. He'd been murdered on that corner. Those things changed my life because it wasn't just they and them. It wasn't just somebody far away on a, on a 60 minute show. I saw it, and I realized that as a minister of the gospel, how could I see Know that this horror lives where I live and not walk away. And walk away, rather. I got a job working at Glide Memorial Church. I see one of my Bible students here. Larry, stand up and wave at everybody. This is my friend Larry. Larry lives in San Mateo. And he's a, a proud member of Glide Memorial Church. Thank you, Brother Larry. Thank you for being with us this morning. He's a proud member. I taught Bible study. I taught the people's Bible study at Glide for years and years. And in Glide, how many people have ever heard of Glide Memorial Church? Glide serves 750,000 meals a year to the poorest people in America. When you go to Glide early in the morning, there's a line that stretches to the corner, sometimes around the corner. People are there in wheelchairs. People have slept outside the night before. The mentally ill, the severely impoverished are there. One, one day when I first started working there, a man came into my office, and he smelled awful. I'm just going to keep it real with you. He smelled awful. He lived in a van that was full with cats. So if you can imagine, it, he, it was like almost like sleeping in a cat litter box. And we walked in the office. He said, I need to get off the streets. I need services. And I said, homie, I said, I got you. But I, and I, I have, I, I'm bilingual. I said, homie, I got you. Check this out. What you got? We gonna? You're gonna have to. I can send you to get a haircut. You know all of these resources, but you're gonna have to take a shower. And he exploded. But a week or two later, someone came up into my office that I didn't recognize, and he and he got about this close. He got into my private space, so I'm looking him right in the eye, and then he spoke. At that moment, I realized that it was the same guy. He just for the shower. 
just with fresh clothes. And I realized just by talking to people, being present in the right place, that you could make a difference. And at Glide, brother, talk to Brother Larry. I helped many, many people have, find hope. Um, so that was part of my journey. And now I work for Homies Empowerment in East Oakland, California. I want you to Google that later on when you go home. Don't do it now. Google Homies Empowerment when you go home. It's an amazing organization that's building a high school that's feeding people and doing amazing things in the could. And now, before I close, I want to share with you what you can do. How can you make a difference? You know what? I'm, I'm not so poor with this technology. Would you all mind if I turn this off? I just keep, keep hearing a pinging. Sorry about that. Number one, pray for godly eyesight. The first thing you want to do if you want to reach, if you want to stretch the walls of generosity, pray for godly eyesight. Pray that God would give you the eyes to see. In the Bible, Jesus would often talk about those who had, who had eyes but could not see. There is a spiritual dimension that you're going to need to be able to see into to help the poorest people among you. Before I leave the house every day, most mornings I pray, God, help me to see. Help me to see. Help me to be present. God, you're speaking to me. God is speaking to us all the time. But if you don't have the ears to hear and the eyes to see, God could be smacking you in the back of the head, and you're not going to get it. Pray for eyes to see. Lazarus was invisible to the rich man. The vision that sees suffering responds. The vision that sees pain feels empathy. And the, vi the eyes that can see feel the compassion of Christ. Many people can see, but they can't see. Mother Teresa once said, you can find Calcutta anywhere in the world. You only need two eyes to see. Everywhere in the world there are people who are not loved. People have been here. People in the world that are not loved, there are people who are not wanted, not desired, people that no one will help, people who are pushed away or forgotten, and this is the greatest poverty. You're not going to be able to help anyone until you can see. We need spiritual eyesight to take us to the next level. There was a, there was a, a man that I helped. His name was, I won't tell you his name. <laughs> I'll call him Fred. I like, the, I like the name Fred. Any Freds in the house? Good. Fred came up to me one day, walked into my office, and he said, uh, he, he, and I looked at him when I worked at Glide, and he had a, a white jumps, he had a white um, gym suit on. Well, at least at one time it was white. It was gray. It was so dirty and dusty, had, the white had turned gray, and he was carrying a big old garbage, hefty bag behind him with all of his personal belongs in it, in it. And he said, bro, how can you help me get in, out of my situation? And I helped, I'm going to make it a long story short, I helped that man go from living in the streets to having his own apartment. I knew, no, his own room rather. I knew what it was to look out the window at him and to see him walking down the street with new fresh clothes on. One day I was talking to Fred and I said, Fred, tell me what it's like to be homeless. And he said, you become invisible to people. He said, when you walk up to folk, instead of your eyes meeting, they look down. He said, they look down at you. Who has become invisible in your life? In the church world, we have our friends that are in, our, in, the, in the church who are our, home, our homies, our hangout buddies. We go to lunch with them. But there's some people who are going to go to lunch, never get to go to lunch. They're Lazarus. Lazarus is in here. They're poor. They're poor in heart, poor in spirit. They mourn. I know because I'm single. Single people have a difficult way to make in the, in the church world. So Lazarus is not just outside of the building. Lazarus is in here. Mr. Pratty, Mr., Mr. Um, this brother said, Freddie said to me, he said, man, people, I become invisible to people. Don't let anyone become visible. Pray for eyesight. Number two, study what Jesus said about poverty. There was so much. Jesus spoke about the wealth inequality gap and what and, and the power of and so much of his life talked about that. And he talks about even in eternity, what you do for poor people and people who are marginalized and disenfranchised is going to have a major impact on eternity. 
You don't hear that said in certain circles, but it's in the Bible. Look at what Jesus said. Study your Bible. Read the books of Amos and the books of Micah. Read Isaiah. Let God's word challenge you to serve. Serve from the call of God. Not just from this benevolence that says it's the right thing to do. Get inside of God's word. Let God's word tear at you, speak to you, give you, give you the power to do what you need to do. Number three, solidarity, not charity. This is a biggie. You know, the organization that JP and I work with is built on this. Solidarity, not charity. I've worked in organizations where it works by charity. It's really well-off people who feel good about themselves by doling out goodies to the poorest folk. It's, it's a charitable situation, and what it does is it diminishes the poorest people, and it gives the, the, uh, the people who are doing the giving a sense of um, uh, almost deification. You know what? We are one. The pastor asked me to speak about serving our neighbors more generously. The first clue to that is to see folk as you see yourself, love your neighbor as yourself, not uh, below yourself. You need to see that person as your brother, your sister, your neighbor. You, th that is one thing that destroys. Privilege is poison. Don't make people beggars. This is another thing I'm going to tell you. I'm going to help you with this one because I see a lot of people get taken advantage of when they help poor people. I've been doing this a long time. Never do for people what they can do for themselves. That's a the privilege leads us to feel so bad about the situation and the wealth and inequality. We do for people sometimes what they can do for themselves. There was a sociologist from, um, from Northwestern University in, in Illinois, Chicago, named John McKnight. He came up with a, uh, a theorem called ABCD. And that stands for um, Asset-Based Community Development. That means when you go to poor people or people who are in struggle, you talk to them about what they want to see happen, not what you look at them and think they need. Ask them what they need, what, and then ask them, what are you prepared to do? Bring them to the table. See, what we do is we create the Christian Welfare Bureau. We go through the community and say, hmm, you look like you need this, and you look like you need that, and we'll give you this. Instead of actually telling the people, uh, tell us what you need, and then bringing them and making them part of their own solution. Free stuff can cripple people. Free giving people stuff and never asking for anything in return can cripple people. Number four is, who is at your gate? How many unhoused people are in San Mateo County? I looked that up. I couldn't, I found that 2019, I couldn't, I think there was a census that was done in 2019, but it's a lot of, it's about, it was like 1,015 people. That's a lot of people. Who is here? Who is in your midst that needs help? Um, who is at your gate? Where do they live? What do they need? Who lives next door to you? You know, sometimes we look to say, you know, when I was a kid, I went to a church that really believed in missions. So we would send money overseas. And missionaries, I was brought up in a church, and I still believe this. Missionaries were like superheroes. When they would come home from the foreign field, you'd want them to live at your house, sit at your dinner table. We looked at them because we thought they were brave and courageous because they took the message across the seas. But you know, Jesus told his disciples upon the, before his resurrection to take the message to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. And he told them Jerusalem first because they were in Jerusalem. Who lives next door to you? You know, I'm not a, I'm not a rich preacher. And, some of, uh, and one day I was going through a difficult time. And I walked outside and I stepped on something. My foot landed on it. And I looked, and it was a gift certificate from Subways. One of my, and and that, it happened again and again and again. I don't know who left that gift certificate there. I don't know. They never, the person had to walk past me all the time smiling, but they never revealed what they'd done. But you know what? There's some next-door neighbor who might be elderly. Somebody's got kids, and they, they, they need help with babysitting chores. Who lives right next door to you? Who's at your gate? Number five. Don't reinvent the wheel. Who's doing the work? 
God is already moving. God is already at work in the world someplace, somewhere in this community. Somebody is doing the real work. Instead of reinventing the wheel, get with them. Support their efforts. Be a part of their efforts. Uh, my friend, uh, Reverend Allison Tanner at Lake Shore Avenue Baptist Church, came to see us at home. She, she called me one day, and she says, you know, I've got an idea. She goes, she, she walks around and centers a privilege in her life. She realizes that Homies Empowerment serves the poorest people in Oakland. She said, this is what I'm going to do. You don't need me to come out to where you are and serve in that way, though she does that. She said, I'm going to go to my friends who are privileged, and I'm going to raise money for you because I see the work of God where you are. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. Um, number six, and this is a big one, give money. Give money. Somebody say, I want you to yell to be Baptist for a minute. <laughs> say these words at me. Give money. Give money. Ooh, that was so quiet. <laughs> I want you to hear it say that so that they can hear it back in Oakland. Give money. Give money. Yeah, okay. <laughs> be generous. Your bread can be turned into bread. There are organizations serving in the, the inner city and uh, place, other places around the world where 2 to $3 creates a meal. The, the money that you spend can impact eternity. Look at this story. The, the rich man's generosity or lack of it had an impact on the end of the story. You know, I work with a, uh, I have a dear friend in the community. Her name is Jamie Blanco. She came to East Oakland as a missionary, and she fell in love with the people there. She, she, she's in an all-black community, and she's a white woman with long red hair. Uh, and we, she and I were talking one day, and she said, Rev, you people don't understand. The people come to me at the, at the, at, in the place of real desperation before they're going to re get ready to do something because they need money. She said, even a gift card with $20 on it saying, here, take this gift card could make an impact, could stop somebody from doing something wrong. And she's talked about the fact that there are people who will show up and they'll say they have great wealth, but they'll show up with, with a, a 12 tray full of donuts or, or some, some, uh, some bagels or something. And she appreciates that, but man, these people could close the income inequality gap to make the, the poorest among them look like brothers. God wants your money. When God has your money, he has you. When my mother passed away, my mother was very close, close mouth about how much money she made or how much she had. When she passed away, I was able to look through her bank account, all of her bank account books. And you know what I discovered about my mother, who was, who was a dear woman who loved God, community evangelist, helped a whole lot of people? My mother's bank book looked like her religion. When you start looking at where those expenditures were going, you started thumbing through the pages, her religion was mirrored in her bank book. What does your bank book say about your religion? About your call to serve the least of these? In the story, the rich man ends up in hell or in Hades because he didn't want to separate from the God of his life. And that, that, same, that same temptation is here today. Now, I'm not going to tell you to throw away money frivolously. There are organizations that are really doing the good work, and there are some that I've seen, they're, they're just hustlers and gangsters with a, with a business card. Don't throw away money frivolously. Take a look to see if these people are really doing the work. Go visit where your money's going. You know, go visit where your money's going. If you're sending money to an organization, you want to see if they're really doing the work because that money is sacred. The, that, the use of that money is sacred. Number seven, don't wait until you have all your ducks in a row. A lot of people are saying, well, Rev, you know, I'm trying to get this together. Once I get that together, then I'll do this. No. The price of a latte can buy a meal for a hungry person. A pair of, you know, a pair of socks can make a difference. You know, there's Sister Ann Morrison who goes to, to Glide Memorial Church. Sister Ann, every year, she the, the, the one thing that homeless people have that really troubles them, unhoused people, unsheltered brothers and sisters have that really troubles them, is that they, uh, their feet get wet. It's in the middle of the winter, it's raining every single day, 
and they don't have fresh socks. They don't have fresh shoes. So every year what she does is she has this woman who's a senior citizen and, and struggling herself in times has a sock drive. And she tells people, bring socks in. Bring the socks in. Not a, but, you know, the huge thing to those people. Imagine your feet being so damp and that you, when you walk down, you can feel the squishiness in your shoes. And then somebody hands you a pair of fresh socks. I used to work with a man who had mental health disabilities. He couldn't work, but he could read. So once a week, he would go to the library, and, and he would read with folk who were, um, he would sit down and he would read with people who were uh, newcomers to the country, to the nation. He would help them learn how to read. You can do that. A young man came up to me last week. I was walking down the street in East Oakland, California, and he said, Rev, you see this spot right here? The owner has given me this spot for one year. It's a gas station. He said, if you clean this up, you can have community events here. He said, Rev, you can come out here and preach. Man, he needs people to give flowers. Come paint murals on the side of the place. You can paint. You, you can bring a flower. Don't wait until you have all the ducks in the row. Some people say, well, I'm not qualified. Man, God specializes in people who are not qualified. Just read your Bible. Number eight, listen. Listen. You're going to get ready to do some transformative work now. If you take what I'm telling you to do, some of you, I can just look in your eyes and I can see something stirring inside of you and your imaginations are twirling around inside. This is some, going to be some transformative work. You're going to have to change the way that you see people. When I was in college, I learned about something in psychology class called the Joe Harry window. It was called the Joe Harry window because it was created by two, um, two, socio two psychologists. One's name was Harry and the other's name was, uh, was uh, Joseph. And each of us, they said, sees the world through this unique lens of our experiences. The church you grew up in, your grandparents, your mom and dad, the, the experiences you had at school, they all form how you will see the world. So you're going to need to listen to this new world to understand what happened. You can't understand, someone told me, when you see the plight of people in East Oakland, you can't understand that by looking at a news clip. There's a historical context that creates what you see. You have to be able to listen. When you, do the, when you start interacting with folk in the community, our, our, um, I was brought up like this. I learned, I, I, we preach to people. Listen to them. Hey, how you doing? What was your day like? Tell me about your life. And when you really come into the situation, get them to tell you about where they came from, about their struggles. Listen. Listen to those who are on the margin. Stretch the way you see the world. It will change everything. Number nine, don't feel guilty about your privilege. There are people who feel this awful sense of guilt. Because they were born with privilege. You can't change that. But you can change what you do with that privilege. I have a friend of mine. She's, she's an uh, Anglo young lady. Ellen. Larry. She's a school teacher. And so I was talking to her one day and she realized that somebody that she knew was being mistreated by the car insurance people. And the people were treating her really bad. So this person was a person of color. She said, and I hope you all don't mind if I say this. She said, I'm going to go to the insurance company with my white woman's suit on and straighten that situation out. She's going to use that privilege. You know, don't, there's a lot of people that walk around with self-hate, self-recrimination. You can't change the past, but you can change the future. You can make Lazarus now your brother. What an incredible opportunity you have. Um, be a student. Number, number 10 would be be a student. Read widely outside of your life experiences. Man, my friend JP, when, when we talk, she's got a whole list of books that she's reading, and we, we talk about her, her readings about Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. I've had books that changed my whole life. Parting the Waters by Taylor Branch, America in the King Years, changed my entire life. One-Sided Christianity by Ron Sider changed my entire life. Um, use, use the, uh, the, 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 the 
the uh, read about people and things that are really making a difference. Uh, you, reading can change your whole world. And if you want me to send you a list of books that I would recommend, I will do that. You know what? We're, I'm getting close to the end of this sermon, so I'm going to read real. I'm going to read through these, and um, maybe after we're going to have a time of discussion, we'll, we'll get into some more of them. Be a student. Don't judge. Don't judge. I got to get into this one. A young man walked up to me one day, and he said, Rev, when I was, he had, he, had a, he had a criminal record. He said, Rev, when I was a kid, I said, how'd you get up in this, how'd you get caught up in what they call the game? He said, Rev, it's like this. When I was a little boy, my parents were addicted to drugs. My little brother was hungry. He tugged at my sleeve and said, I'm hungry, there's no food. So he walked outside, and the drug dealers looked at him and said, you want to make some money? And he said, yeah. The shot calls, the OGs, they looked at him and said, he said, yeah, I need to. He said, here, take this package and run it across the street, and I'll give you X amount of dollars. And that's how he began to be able to free feed his brother. If that was you in that situation, what would you do? What would you do? Judgment is a big barrier between us. That's why you need to listen. That's why you need to read. Um, so, la- oh, I'm almost to the end. <laughs> good, good. Okay. Real religion, you just go back and read this story. Real religion is not just saying some words. Jesus talks so much about crossing the line. I met Snoop Dogg once, and uh, my friend introduced me to him. And Snoop, he said, my friend said, Snoop, this is Rev. This is Reverend Harry Williams. And he looks at me, Snoop looked at me with this look, like he doesn't have a lot of respect for preachers because preachers practice what we know called the, as the holy shakedown. You know, preachers walk around with, like, with an offering basket behind their back. Hi, Snoop. He looked at my friend said, oh, he's not that kind of preacher. He's a hood preacher. He's, he's, oh, oh. People in the world are looking for real religion. There's enough theology. There's enough preaching. They're looking for some doing. The last thing is you want a life of meaning in your life, don't you? All of us want to have a life where our life means something. Young man, a man looked at me one day um, in San Francisco, and he was saying, we got into conversation. He said, I'm retired. I don't have anything to do with my life. My wife died. I've worked for the post office. I'm really sad. And I looked at him, and I said, what? I said, do you realize how many people are out here who need you to step into their lives and perform some level of service? During the pandemic, a woman looked at me, and she said, Rev, I'm, I'm lonely. I don't know what to do. Right before I spoke to her, I, I spoke to another young man. He said, I'm lonely. I don't know what to do. I said, um, I, gave each, I gave each one the other one's phone number. <laughs> Lazarus is at your gates. And some of us are Lazarus. You're hurting. You're dealing with mental health issues. You feel abandoned, alone. Get in the community. Stay in this community. And I want you to, as this church body, if I could leave you with one word, before you go out and you, you look for Lazarus in those streets or in the highways and byways or in the trailer camps, look for Lazarus in here. And Lazarus, I want to tell you that your life matters, that God loves you, that you're important. Peace, y'all.